morning, everybody. It's good to see you all today. And uh, we are in John chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Also in your program this morning, there is an outline if you like to use that to, to follow along. And uh, you might remember that uh, last week we took a little bit of a detour. We went all the way to the end of John to uh, address the the resurrection on Easter Sunday, and so now we're returning back to the middle of John chapter 6, where we left off just a couple of weeks ago. This is a fairly lengthy passage, and we're going to be moving fairly quickly through some sections of it, so I want to encourage you to do this. I want to encourage you to this week sometime, look for some, uh, a moment to sit down and read through at least John chapter 6 so that you can uh, really get the whole flow of the text because we are going to skip some parts today. Well, when you Google the small town of Lengby, there's pretty much just one result that pops up. Something that happened more than 40 years ago. The accounts online call it a miracle. On the night of December 20th, 1980, 19-year-old Jean Hillard's car went into a ditch. She tried to walk for help. She was found in the morning in the front yard of a local cattle rancher, frozen, solid as a log. Wally Nelson, that rancher, awoke to find the body of that young woman on his doorstep, where she had apparently sat for more than six hours in the temperature, which was 22 below zero. He brought her to the hospital where, to everyone's disbelief, she was revived with no more damage than a few blistered toes. Well, Hilliard instantly became a celebrity. She toured local churches, talk shows, flew her to New York City to tell her story. The miracle girl from Langby, Minnesota, she was even on the Today Show where Tom Brokaw interviewed her. But once the attention died down, Hilliard said the experience didn't really change the trajectory of her life. Almost everyone she knew told her that she had been saved by a miracle. So she said she kept waiting and waiting for something dramatic to happen in her life. But her life has just been normal. She got married. She had several children. She moved to a mid-sized town in central Minnesota where she works today at a local Walmart store. Now, things might have turned out differently, Hilliard said, if she remembered the six hours that she spent frozen in Mr. Nelson's yard. If she'd seen anything dramatic. It's like I fell asleep and woke up at the hospital. She said, I didn't see the bright lights or anything like that. It was kind of disappointing. So many people talk about that, and I didn't get anything. That's an interesting take, isn't it? You know, I think it's understandable, an understandable thing to say, but, but I thought, found myself thinking this. What if the miracle was enough? What if living a normal life with ordinary kids in a regular town and working at Walmart is the reason for the miracle? What if we all could find in the presence of Christ, the miracle in our life. 
in the glory of God, what if we experience the miracle that God has for all of us right where we live today? Would we be satisfied? Or would we, with Gene Hillard, say, I didn't get anything. Just didn't get anything. Well, so far in our journey through the Gospel of John, John has recorded five amazing miracles, or what he calls signs, including the ones that we looked at two weeks ago when Jesus fed the crowds of thousands with one young boy's meager lunch. And the crowd recognized the miracle. They even sought, Jesus, uh, sought out Jesus to make him their king. And so we left off with Jesus and the disciples kind of dodging the crowd and meeting up for a late night cruise, if you will, on the Lake of Galilee, which happened to be the next sign that John recorded there. Well, the next morning, the crowds wake up to find that Jesus and his disciples are gone. And so they decide to get in boats and cross the Sea of Galilee and find Jesus across the, the sea in Capernaum. Since they know that Jesus didn't get into the boat with his disciples, they are very curious how he got over there. But like many times in the Gospel of John, Jesus sees past their question in order to get to a more profound topic. Jesus tells them that they weren't following him because they saw signs, which should have led them to a particular belief about his identity as the Messiah, the Son of God. But Jesus says they were following him in order just to get some more free food. He just puts it like it is. Well, we're calling today's message, I am the bread of life. Because Jesus uses that miracle of the loaves and the fish to launch into the reality of his role as the eternal bread of life. I want you to join me in reading this next section of our text. John chapter 6, verses 26 through 29. Let's read it together. The words are on the screen. Jesus answered the crowd, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Then they said to him, Oh, excuse me. Are we done there, Merlene? That's the last verse. All right, thank you. Thought we had a little bit more there. Well, that's God's word. As Jesus encounters these crowds of people, he is calling them to a particular understanding of who he is, as well as inviting them into a relationship with him, a relationship that is full of great joy. And likewise, that invitation is extended to us. We too can have a joy-filled life if we look to Jesus as the true bread of life if we understand that only Jesus brings soul satisfaction when we place our faith in him, when we treasure the words that he spoke. And so for the rest of our time this morning, I want to examine 
this encounter to learn some basic do's and don'ts, if you will, for receiving the true bread of life. So let's start with the first one. Don't. Don't look for temporary pleasure. Don't look for temporary pleasure. Instead, we ought to labor for food that leads to eternal life. As in John chapter 4, you might remember when Jesus offered the Samaritan woman at the well living water that welled up to eternal life. And likewise, Jesus here tells the crowd, labor for food that will never perish. Not temporary food. The only secure source of this eternal food is Jesus himself, the sent one, endorsed by the Father, shown in his fulfillment of all of the Old Testament uh, messianic promises and, and prophecies. You know, in Scripture, there's a couple of reminders. One is in the book of James, and it says, every good and perfect gift comes from where? Above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation. And, and then Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, he says that life and breath and everything comes from God. And he richly provides us with everything we enjoy. Isn't that an interesting verse? But all of these things, all of this stuff that we have in life, family, job, food, drink, exercise, rest, recreation, all of these temporary things are meant to point us to God and to the eternal life that only he can provide. But you know, friends, sadly, many of us, many of us put more time and effort and money and energy into planning our next vacation, our next home improvement project, or our next party than we do in strengthening our belief and our knowledge and our commitment to Jesus. And so, yes, enjoy God's gifts that come from above. But remember their purpose to point us to his greatest gift. The greatest gift that he gives us, which is life in Jesus. Don't look merely for temporary pleasure. Let's move on. Now let's go to a do. Don't look for temporary pleasure, but do... Do the work of God. Do the work of God. So the crowd responds to Jesus and they say, well, what, what do we have to do to be doing the work of God? Jesus, tell us. And, and this really is an adventure in missing the point, if you will. We, we've seen this before, haven't we? Back in chapter three, remember Nicodemus? Jesus said, you gotta be born again. And he said, well, how can a man be born again when he's old? just over the top of his head. Or in chapter four, that Samaritan woman, we've already mentioned her at the well, she said, give me some of this living water, Jesus, so that I don't have to come back to this well and lug at this water back home anymore. Again, right over the top of her head, she misses it. They and we often confuse spiritual truth with physical reality. And we're much more invested in the physical reality than we are in the spiritual truth that God has for us. The crowd, they are prepared, they say, to do whatever work God requires of them to be right with him. But really, they're just displaying their ignorance that they could ever, 
ever do enough stuff to earn God's favor or blessing. And so Jesus responds and he sets the record straight. He says to them, what God requires of you is faith. Faith. Faith specifically in the one whom God has sent, Jesus the Messiah. No work that we can do will reconcile us to God apart from Jesus Christ. We must have faith in the finished work of Jesus. That is the work of God that we're called to do. Nothing that we do can merit favor with God. We must trust in Jesus' work on our behalf. And this truth kills the despair and the defeat that we so often experience that follow right out of our own sin failures. We think, what can I do? I'm just a mess. And that's when we call on Jesus. By the way, it also destroys our pride and our self-reliance. I got this. I'll figure this out. No. Friends, look to Jesus alone in faith to be saved. This is the work that he's called you and I to. Look to Jesus brothers and sisters, and when we do, we will respond rightly to sin and we will continue growth in our belief and our faith in him. Well, next Jesus gets into the, we might say the details of what this faith looks like. And so here's our next do. Do eat the true bread. Do eat the true bread. That is let your soul be satisfied with Jesus. Let's read this next section together, verses 30 through 40. So they, that's the crowd, said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Amen. The word of God. By the way, do you ever struggle with wondering what God's will is for your life? Jesus says it right there. Here's the will of my Father. Believe in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. And so... We find the crowd now asking Jesus, well, hey, what sign will you do, Jesus? What will you perform so that we can see it and, and believe in you? And that's 
a strange question, isn't it? Because they had just seen him the day before perform a miraculous sign of feeding thousands of people with one little boy's lunch. Some were even wondering if Jesus was perhaps like the prophet Moses who took care of their ancestors. But they want more. They want more. Isn't that just so human of us, right? We always want more, more, more. We expect more. We demand more. Give me some more bread, Jesus, they say. Oh, my goodness. How many of you have taken a selfie? Ever taken a selfie? Let's, uh, let's take some selfies right now, all right? Uh, you guys wave. All right, this side first. Let me get over there. All right, ready? Here we go. All right, there we go. Two, one. There we go. All right, let me get this side. Doing a couple of selfies here. Everybody wave over there. Three, two, one. There we go. Hello. All right, good job. All right, selfies. Selfies are fun, aren't they? You know, um, they might seem perhaps a bit narcissistic at times, but on the whole, they're, they're pretty, pretty harmless, right? Well, not according to the numbers. Listen to this. Did you know that selfies are more dangerous than sharks? Did you know that? Reports say that the death toll from selfie-related incidents in the last 10 years is now well over 350. And in that same period of time, 50 people have been attacked and killed by sharks. Most of the incidents involving uh, selfie-related problems involve tourists attempting to take pictures of themselves near dangerously high ledges, losing their balance, and then falling. Well, the result, though tragic, I think bears an uncanny resemblance to our sinful human condition that so often desires more. Give me some more, more fun, more power, more glory for ourselves, just a little closer to the edge. Click, only to be brought crashing down by the futility of our own desires. And so when the crowd asks for more, Jesus points away from Moses. They say, hey, Moses, hey, you gave us free lunch all the time. What about you, Jesus? Jesus points away from Moses and he points to Jehovah God as the provider of that continuous bread, that manna in the Old Testament. And he says that in fact, now, right now as he's talking to them, God is providing the true bread to people. Namely, the one he has sent. Jesus is the true bread. This bread comes down from heaven and it gives life to the world. Of course, how do the people respond? Oh, give us some of that free bread. We'll take some more, 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 more of this bread. Give us this bread all the time. Well, then Jesus really we could say that this is where the rubber meets the road, folks. Jesus gets down to bottom, bot, the bottom line, brass tacks here of this whole teaching. He says, he is the bread of life. I am the bread of life. This is a very important statement in John's gospel. This is the first of seven similar claims that Jesus will make that John will record in his gospel like the seven signs that we've already looked at a number of already, John also includes these seven key 
I am statements in his gospel. And what he's doing is linking Jesus directly to the personal name of God, Yahweh, Jehovah, I am. You remember when Moses first met God out there in the wilderness, the burning bush? And the bush said, you're going to go back and you're going to lead my people. And Moses says, no way. And he said, yeah, you are. And then Moses says, well, who should I tell him sent me? And what does God answer? I am. You tell him, I am sent you. I am who I am. God's personal name. And so Jesus takes that name and he applies it to himself. I am the bread of life. This is that very first statement that he makes that John records. Whoever comes and believes in Jesus, the great I am, will never Never hunger or thirst. And so you see, friends, saving faith includes coming to Jesus to have our hunger and our thirst of our soul satisfied. It's not just about salvation. We're not talking about fire insurance here when we come to Jesus. He wants so much more for us. He wants to bring full satisfaction into our life. Have you ever been just so sick that you couldn't eat for a, a period of time? Or maybe you, you made an attempt at fasting and you, you didn't eat for a period of time on purpose. Th then you know that those moments when you finally taste food again and the taste is incredible and it's very, what? Satisfying. You come with expectations and you leave with joy. Or, or maybe you, you've played sports or you've known the, the heat of a hot summer day, hiking or biking or doing yard work or some other, other activity with friends and family, and you just feel so thirsty, so parched. And then you get that big, cool drink of water. And it refreshes. It satisfies, doesn't it? Friends, that is the desire that we must have for Jesus greater than that desire for food when you haven't eaten for a long time or drink when you haven't had anything, when you're so hot. We must come to Jesus in faith, hungry, with a faith that says, Lord, you are the only one who can satisfy my longings for joy. Do you believe that? Friends, eternal life is found in eating the true bread of life. Jesus himself. So do eat the eternal bread. Well, next we come to a, another section that we're calling don't. Don't grumble. Don't grumble. Now the crowds increasingly are growing to dislike and reject Jesus' teaching. They complain because they know this guy. This is Joseph and Mary's son, the kid who, who worked in the carpenter shop there in downtown Nazareth. How is he from heaven? Come on. What does he think he is anyway? What's he talking about? And so Jesus instructs them not to grumble. Stop grumbling. And you might remember that the relatives of this crowd, their forebearers, the Hebrew people in the wilderness, they spent... A, a good amount of their time grumbling too. 
And if we were to go back into the Old Testament and read those accounts closely, we would say that grumbling is something that God, well, the scripture says God abhors. Abhors, that means God really hates it. God does not like it when his people grumble. And you know why? Because grumbling is a sign of unbelief. It's a sign of unbelief. Jesus says that the Father will draw a people to himself. And Jesus then will raise them up on the last day. And here Jesus is quoting from Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 13. And he is saying that those who learn from the Father will come to Jesus as the bread of life. And once again, he repeats that I am statement. I am the bread of life. There can be no mistake. There is no misunderstanding here. Jesus is not talking about wheat or rye or sourdough. All right? Not finding, talking about anything you're going to find in your kitchen. He is the bread of life. Now, their ancestors, who they remember ate manna, that heavenly bread every day, the bread from heaven, the bread that was shown up every day, that was always available and never ran out, as awesome as that seemed, those who ate the manna grumbled. And then what? And then they died. They died. But if we partake of the true bread of life, guess what? We will live forever. That is the promise Jesus makes. And so next, as Jesus encourages them to move from grumbling and complaining to a full faith and a belief in who he is, he introduces now one of his more difficult teachings in the New Testament. So we're going to read this passage together, and it is a bit difficult. I'll just say that right up front, but we'll talk about that in a moment. Let's read this together, verses 52 through 59. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So as these crowds came, apparently, they began to thin out a bit until Jesus transferred from the outdoors into the synagogue. And so maybe this is the most committed group of folks, right? After all, they're at church together. And Jesus then begins to say some stuff that, can we just say, is kind of weird, right? 
Now, clearly, the crowds are bothered by this teaching. I mean, after all, it sounds like cannibalism, right? What is he talking about? Eating his flesh, drinking his blood. And, and so they begin to argue about the meaning and the application with one another. But in, instead, I want you to see this, instead of clearing things up or acting as a, as a referee in their dispute, Jesus gets even more graphic with his talk of, of eating flesh and drinking blood. What, what's happening here? Friends, Jesus tells them and us what true followers of him will look like. True followers are not grumblers. They're not always wanting more, more, more. They're not people who never say thank you. No, true followers are those who, Jesus says, abide abide in me. And that's a very important word there. It comes from uh, the, the Hebrew word uh, to pitch a tent, to pitch a tent, to live in. And so as they look back to their, their forefathers who wandered in the wilderness, they lived in tents, right? They had their abodes. They uh, had an abide. They abided in their tent. And Jesus says, I want you to live, to abide in me. And guess what? I, in turn, Jesus says, will abide. I will pitch my tent. I will live in you. That's an amazing teaching. An amazing promise. Now, I want to say this. This would probably not be the first passage of Scripture to share with someone that you're trying to introduce to Jesus for the first time, all right? It might scare somebody off, right? Blood, eating, drinking, it's not the passage that I will first use when I'm trying to witness to someone. These are some of the harder sayings of Jesus to accept and understand. And so let's cut the crowd a little bit of slack here. And yet, friends, let's also understand that these are deep and important truths for us to grasp as true followers. I want us to know this. This passage is much more than looking ahead to communion. We shared together in communion a little bit earlier. Now, are there definite allusions to, towards what we, we celebrate during the Lord's Supper? Absolutely. Communion is a commemoration and a remembrance of what Jesus did for us by sacrificing his body and spilling his blood to satisfy the Father's justice uh, uh, regarding sin. Absolutely. But, this is not the central point of what Jesus is teaching us here. All right? In fact, this came several years before Jesus instituted the Last Supper and taught about the communion. What Jesus is saying to these people and to you and I is, look, you guys want to make your life better here on earth? Here on this sin-ravaged earth? And you think that the answer is a free lunch every day. That's like giving somebody a comfortable mattress, but they're stuck in a prison cell for the rest of their life. So here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am going to give my life, my flesh, my blood, so that you and you and you can experience new life in the kingdom of God. Not only does Jesus say, am I going to lay down my life in sacrifice, but I will come and live inside you 
and be your continuing nourishment, your blood, your life force in my new kingdom. This is what it means to eat and drink of Jesus. It means that he is so much a part of us that it's like eating and drinking for our physical body. And so friends, may we not be people that grumble, but instead, may we be people that eat of the flesh and drink of the blood of the Son of Man. And then finally, one more don't. Don't be offended. Don't be offended. Don't be easily offended because only Jesus has the true words of eternal life. Do you, do you ever feel like we live in an easily offended society? Absolutely we do, right? We have cultivated a culture of outrage, right? That allows us to air our every grievance uh, to the world with just a, a few keystrokes on, on our favorite social media platform. And with more access to other people's opinions, then we also have opportunities to be more angry about all that stuff, right? And then we combine that with a culture that often is offensive and unjust. And you have a recipe for thin-skinned people who are easily offended. Friends, living with a kingdom mindset requires both generosity of spirit and humility we don't need to be easily offended now clearly the crowds around Jesus don't understand this now throughout the narrative the crowd has moved from being joyful pursuing Jesus oh we want him to be our king give us some more bread to increasing disagreement to disgust what is he talking about to even rejection and they grumble again saying oh this is a hard saying but Jesus doesn't back down from those supposed disciples instead he says to them if they take offense at this then what will they think when they see Jesus on the cross the beginning of his ascending back to the place where he has come from if they can't handle a little talk about blood, what are they going to think about the cross? Friends, what has to happen in our hearts is that the word of God and the spirit of God penetrate our heart in such a way that we see God's word as bread, as sustenance, as something we cannot live without. It is the truth that comes from Jesus. Jesus knows that some will believe and some will not believe. And it's all about our heart condition. So the question we have to ask this morning is, what condition is your heart in? Are you a grumbler? Are you easily offended when things don't go the way that you think they ought to? Do you not like some of the teachings of Jesus and you say, oh, well, that's not for me? That's not what we're called to. But sadly, when all was said and done, many who did follow him walked away. 
They didn't get what they wanted. They wanted more free stuff. And they didn't get it. And so guess what? They left lacking what they needed. They took offense. They left because Jesus offered what they needed and not what they think, what they thought they really wanted. And and friends, in a similar way for us, we often want things that won't benefit us. And all the while, we need things that we rarely give a thought to. And as a result, we may be in danger of walking away from the truth. Some will follow. Some will question. Some will scoff. Some will reject. And some who once followed will choose to walk away completely. And that is a grievous state to be in. But friends, we don't have any control over those other people. The people in our crowd, right? We don't have control over them. But we do have a choice for ourselves. How will we respond to Jesus' call and invitation? Jesus turns at this point to the 12, all right? And he basically says, are you guys going to leave too? I love this because I think you see a, a human side of Jesus here, right? He's investing, he's teaching, he's doing miracles. He's doing all that he can to draw people to the truth. And they're not having any of it. And so he turns to his guys and he says, guys, are you going to leave too? To which Peter rightly responds, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. What a powerful statement that Peter makes before he fully understands what he's even saying. He makes this powerful statement. And so friends, we can't be offended by the words of Jesus. We don't have time to be offended because we're called to embrace them, to abide in them. It is the word of God contained in Scripture that leads us to the life that we so desperately need. All of the Scriptures, the Old Testament and New Testament, testify of Jesus as the climax and the culmination of every covenant, every promise, every prophecy. And we, friends, must persevere in these truths. And we must proclaim them to others. As World War II was drawing to a close, the Allied armies gathered up hundreds of hungry and malnourished orphans, their parents having been killed during the war. These orphans were were placed in camps where they received medical treatment and and, and education, and they were well-fed. But despite the great care that they received, many of the children couldn't sleep at night because they were nervous. They were afraid. And finally, leaders in the camp came up with a a kind of a solution. Each child was given a piece of bread to hold, just to hold on to each night. And, and, And they were told to hold on to it, but not to eat it. And something amazing happened. These orphans slept soundly. Because they knew instinctively that they would have food to eat 
the next day. Well, friends, the scriptures tell us that we are orphans because of our sin. And God wants to give us the bread to hold on to. But, but there's more. Jesus is the bread of life. And you and I must partake of him by asking him to come and live, to abide inside of us. And you know what happens though? Some of us are just holding him at arm's length. You understand that? We might even comment on how nice the bread looks. How good it smells. How delicious it may taste. But it will do no good unless we take it in. Take him in and digest him as the very food for our souls. Jesus is the bread of life. The true bread. The only bread that can sustain us. And friends, it is time to believe that and receive that and begin living that way. Jesus is more than our magic genie. He's more than our fire insurance policy. He is our God and our Savior and our salvation and he is our sustenance. The only one who can keep us going into eternity. We must eat of the bread of life. Let's pray together. Father God, we ask for your, for your guidance this week. Father, as we dwell on these deep and important truths that come from your word, Lord, some of them are difficult, difficult to understand, difficult to ponder, and yet, Lord, these are your words that you've given to us as a gift. Father, may we unwrap that gift and may we use it fully. May we experience the truth of the true bread of heaven as your Holy Spirit helps us to understand more, to grow more, to prosper more, not in temporary things, but in the truth that you have for us. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so friends, I want to say look to Jesus with soul-satisfying faith. Treasure his word. Repentance and faith include turning away from the idols of this life, those temporary things which only provide temporary satisfaction. And turning to Christ, who is the only one who infinitely satisfied, to see and to savor Jesus Christ as increasingly better than anything that this world has to offer. As we close with our final song today, as always, I want you to know that some of our elders will be here to pray with you.